Hello, and welcome to Tiny Insect. Episode 1.1, What is China? This season, we're going to be covering what's likely the largest civil war in history, the Taiping Civil War of the mid-19th century. Before we meet Hong Shiquan and learn how he discovered he was Jesus' younger brother, and why Jehovah commanded him to fight the ruling Qing dynasty, we need to take a step back and learn more about China and some important parts of its history. So, what is China, and why does its history matter to us? And what is that history? If the Taiping Civil War was so big, so important, then why have most of us never heard of it? Unlike stories lost to the mists of time, the Taiping Civil War isn't lacking source material. We have dozens of surviving documents, written by leaders of the Taiping, including its founder Hong Shiquan, as well as diaries and letters and pamphlets by those who fought against them. First-hand, contemporaneous accounts from both Chinese and English language sources survive in large numbers. One reason the Taiping is criminally ignored in popular history is that Chinese history is criminally ignored. There are many reasons for this. One is language. For a native English speaker, learning Chinese languages is pretty difficult, and they aren't commonly taught in American schools. The Chinese textual tradition is deep and rich. The Chinese did invent printing, after all. But as I can personally attest, learning Chinese is not an easy task. While there is a centuries-old tradition of English-language historians reading Spanish, French, German, and Italian, both for primary sources and to read scholarly writings in those languages, there is much less work between Chinese and English. A huge volume of Chinese sources remain untranslated. But there's a much more common, and I think critical, misconception that Chinese history is not our history. And by our history, I mean, quote, Western history. Journalist Max Fisher wrote that, quote, Popular mythology says that ethno-linguistic communities, fixed and eternal, created states in their images. In reality, States ruling over heterodox populations engineered linguistic homogeneity and ethnic identities for the sake of political legitimization and mass mobilization. End quote. The idea of what our history is and isn't was part of this process of invention. We've been taught to believe we have a specific claim to the history of ancient Greece and Rome, for example, while the history of China is foreign and alien. I don't want to get into the specific historiography of why this is the case, or it would take the entire episode. But the distinctions we make between, quote, our history and, quote, their history are constructed as much from our contemporary identities as any historical cause and effect. But I think the proper understanding of history requires us to look past our identity and learn about people of all places and times. We're also told a story that, well, Our legal system is based on Roman traditions, not Chinese tradition. Our philosophy is different. Our religion and our... See how easily I slipped into R there? That's how the stories we tell intertwine themselves with our self-image and identity. The thing is, I think the history of the Taiping and the larger story of the Qing Empire in the 19th century has a lot more to teach us about our experience of the modern world than anything that happened in ancient Greece or Rome. So what is China? China has been many different things to different peoples at different times. It's been a geographic region, a territory represented on a map. It's been a set of cultures that share familial resemblance. It's been many fractured states ruled by competing warlords, and it's been an enormous empire united under the rule of a single man. Consider the question, 
what is the United States? The United States is a country that has existed since she won her independence from Great Britain, or maybe when the Articles of Confederation were signed, or maybe when the Constitution was ratified. Take your pick. If you look at a map of the United States in 1789, for example, and compare it to one today, a bit more than two centuries later, you'll see that there are completely different beasts. One country is a strip of small states hugging the Atlantic coast. Another is a continent striding behemoth, with most of its population residing outside the original 13 colonies. The America of 1789 allowed only white, property-owning males over a certain age to vote. And even then, they could only vote for their U.S. representative. Senators were appointed by state legislators. And don't get me started on the Electoral College. Women, blacks, and Native Americans, among others, were excluded from official political life. Today's America doesn't have a fully realized representative democracy, but we're a hell of a lot closer, with more than 40% of the population casting a vote in the 2016 presidential election. And then there's the fact that before Europeans started claiming the lands that we now know as the United States, they were claimed and inhabited by a number of other peoples and nations. If the, quote, United States is defined by the territory within its modern borders, the history of the United States would stretch back for thousands of years before the Declaration of Independence. Many parts of what we now consider to be China have, for much of their history, been home to people living outside the grasp of the Chinese state or Chinese culture. They have been assimilated into Chinese history through politics, cultural influence, and sometimes violence. Sometimes this has been a more organic process, with people just going about their lives, while other times it has been made official state policy. This process is still ongoing in China today, with the internment of more than a million Uyghurs in, quote, re-education, end quote, concentration camps. In many English language histories, China is defined as a very old country, or a very old civilization. For example, one book I read called Imperial China, quote, an empire that had held power in some form or another for over 2,000 years, end quote. This is anachronistic and a product of state engineering. China's history, as we'll see, is much more fragmented and contingent. The idea that China is a single state with legitimate rule passed down from ruler to ruler over 2,000 years has much more to do with the need of said rulers to assert their authority and build political legitimacy than it does with any accurate understanding of history. It's a convenient fiction. Comparing the Empress Dowager's rule of Qing China in the late 19th century to that of much earlier rulers is like if you compared Thomas Jefferson's rule over the North American continent in the first decade of the 1800s to, let's say, a very hypothetical American president in the 2120s who finds herself ruling over a United States of America with 50 constitutional amendments in 70 states, some of which include territory that were annexed from Canada and Mexico in the late 2080s. The language we use misleads us. Much more recent concepts and identities are projected backwards in time. When you talk about China, depending on what period of history it is, you might be discussing a very different territory, people, culture, technologies, beliefs, ideologies, etc. These evolved and changed over time, as did China. You can learn a lot about China by looking at the Chinese languages. If you take a class in Chinese today, you're usually learning a so-called dialect of the Mandarin language that began as a Beijing court dialect, favored by the elites running the empire, 
who needed a common language to communicate with each other. But the, quote, dialects of Mandarin aren't like dialects or accents of English, American, British, Scottish, Australian, etc. These are considered mutually intelligible. You might have trouble with a few words or need someone with a particularly heavy accent to slow down for you, but if you speak English, you can understand what someone with a different accent is saying. For two languages to be mutually intelligible, one native speaker can understand another without any special training. Here's another example. The Romance languages of Italian, French, Spanish, and Portuguese are considered partially intelligible. A native Spanish speaker can listen to an Italian and understand some of what they're saying, while they won't be able to understand a word of German without learning the language first. Before the 20th century, the court Mandarin language was not mutually intelligible with other Mandarin speakers. Nor were other Mandarin languages mutually intelligible with each other. This is another example of how language can mislead us. Referring to all these languages as Mandarin is sort of like referring to all the modern Romance languages as Latin. Except that, as I understand it at least, the varieties of Mandarin are further apart and less related. They're less mutually intelligible than the Romance languages. And Mandarin, counting all of them together, is just one of ten Chinese languages spoken by the people considered to be ethnically Chinese, so not including Tibetan and languages of other non-Chinese minorities. These languages include Yue, Min, Jin, and Wu. And each of these has their own mutually unintelligible variations. The past century of migrations, state-led education campaigns, and mass media have smoothed this all out a bit, in the same way one particular language spoken around Paris became the French we know today after it was promoted by the state and elite culture in the 19th and 20th centuries. Throughout China's history, you couldn't just travel to a different part of the empire and expect to be able to communicate with the residents there, just like you couldn't travel around Western Europe, even in a politically unified region, and expect to be able to communicate in your native language. China, no matter the ruling dynasty or party, has always been a multi-ethnic, multilingual polity. The Chinese languages are written using characters. Each character, or a logogram as the linguists call them, represents a single word. Instead of learning an alphabet, and then learning to sound out all the individual letters, letter combinations, and weird exceptions to every rule, Chinese characters don't give you any hint of how they're pronounced. To be literate enough to read a newspaper, you need to know at least a few thousand characters. A typical Chinese dictionary will have something like 20,000 characters, but there are many, many more. China's languages also use tones to change the meaning of an otherwise identical syllable. So a word with the same phonetic pronunciation can have completely different meanings depending on what tone is applied. Today's standard Mandarin has four tones. For example, you can say the phonetic ma as ma, 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 ma. Okay, I was trying to do my best there. I'm sure that was truly painful for any Chinese speakers out there. I apologize. Just trying to get the idea across. I took a year of Chinese in college, and despite working harder than any other class I have ever taken, I still had to settle for a pity pass. Second languages are not my strong suit. Anyways, between the characters and the tones, Chinese can seem very alien to a native English speaker. Over the years, English speakers have struggled with how to render Chinese names and words in English, especially written English. By the early 20th century, a system called Wade-Giles became the most popular. Most books in English discussing China 
written before about 1980, used this method of romanization. Here's an example. The name of the famous Taoist book, the Tao Te Ching, in Wei Giles is spelled T-A-O-T-E-C-H-I-N-G. But starting around 1980, English language work switched to a different method of romanization called pinyin, which had been officially adopted by the People's Republic of China in the 1950s. So in pinyin, you'd spell the Tao Te Ching D-A-O-D-E-J-I-N-G. Personally, I'm really glad they did this. Wade Giles is full of weird letter combinations and diacritics that are hard to read correctly. I'll be using pinyin for all my show notes, and it's what I write when I'm typing the scripts for these episodes. I'll also do my best to pronounce names without completely butchering them. Mostly, I hope that if you Google a Chinese word that I say, you'll find the right thing. But please, don't hesitate to write in with any pronunciation tips or suggestions. While I'm at it, another show note. I'm going to be using Chinese names for every city and place. If you're familiar with Chinese history, this might be a little confusing at first. The rest of you are probably wondering why I would use anything but the actual name for a place. For example, take the city of Guangzhou, a major city in the south of China, and the central location for the beginning of the season. Most English speakers know the city by the name Canton, which is a bastardization of the name of the province where the city is located. It's usually still called Canton in modern English language histories, but I can't find any good reason to keep using a name that was a mistake to begin with, so I'm going to call it Guangzhou. That was the name for the city in the 19th century, and it is the name used today. For the rest of the episode, I want to do a lightning overview of Chinese history, geography, and society to provide context for the future episodes. If you want a deep dive into Chinese history in particular, I'd recommend the Chinese History Podcast by Chris Stewart. Let's start with Chinese geography. Unfortunately, it doesn't translate super well to podcasting, so I'm going to keep this pretty brief and highlight just a few important points. But if you like geography, I strongly encourage you to spend a few minutes with the maps of China that I've linked to on the Tiny Insect webpage and in the show notes. The nature of the territory that people encounter in their day-to-day lives, as well as the way we divide said territory in society and politics, is really, really important to understanding history. Knowing, for example, that the state of Japan exists on a series of islands that are prone to frequent earthquakes, that it rarely rains in the Sahara, or that the Himalayan mountains are unbelievably tall, helps you understand the world much more clearly. It's also good to recognize that maps are tools and not neutral documents. Lines on a map might communicate useful information, or they might have misled you into believing that Iraq was a coherent polity that could easily reform under a new government and not just a former colony constructed to fit the needs of some European leaders 100 years ago, held together by the brutal authoritarian rule of a minority population. Today, the People's Republic of China controls about the same area of land as the United States, about 3.7 million square miles. The Republic of China controls the island of Taiwan, which is about 14,000 square miles. So while both of these states claim the name Republic of China, Only the People's Republic of China, or PRC, controls the territory in East Asia I want to talk about here. Taiwan also didn't become part of a Chinese state or have a significant Han Chinese population until the 17th century. So when I refer to modern China, I'm talking about the PRC. Apologies to the Taiwanese nationalists in my audience. The borders of China you see on a map today are pretty new. The outline of modern China only emerged out of the Qing Dynasty's conquests of which Taiwan was one of the first. 
For most of its history, the Chinese state, even when it was politically unified, was quite a bit smaller, around one-third the size of the lower 48 states. That's still quite a large amount of territory, plus this, quote, core territory is some of the most productive land on earth and supported very dense populations. The later additions to the Chinese state tended to be places that had trouble supporting similarly high population densities, deserts of Xinjiang, the hilly jungles of Guizhou, and the steppes of Inner Mongolia. The bulk of the Chinese population and economic activity were oriented around internal waterways like rivers and canals. What the Mediterranean Sea was to the Roman Empire, rivers and canals are to China. They are the blood vessels that have circulated Chinese economic life for millennia, primarily by facilitating long-distance trade of bulk goods. The Chinese heartland is dominated by two large rivers, the Yangtze and the Yellow. Both begin their lives on the Tibetan Plateau and float east. The Yellow is to the north, and the Yangtze is to the south. We're going to talk a lot about these rivers in future episodes because they're really important. Other important rivers include the Han, Wei, Huai, and Pearl Rivers as well as their major tributaries. Chinese laborers and engineers have built thousands of miles of canals linking rivers and lakes together, some of which use sophisticated locks that allowed them to cross rugged terrain. China also has hundreds of miles of ocean coastline. Finally, if you had to look at just one map of China, take a look at William Skinner's eight macro regions of China, which are a good way to think about the distinct economic centers of Chinese life. Not all of these regions were equally important across time. For example, the Lingnan in the south was enough of a provincial backwater that early Chinese emperors would banish their political enemies there, like the Russian Tsar banished political dissidents to Siberia. Later in Chinese history, especially during the period we'll be focusing on, the Lingnan is going to be a very rich and important region of China. So take a look at Skinner's maps. I think it will help you understand and give context to some of the events of the season. There are at least six different regions in the world that developed agriculture independently, and China is one of them. Rice, millet, and soybeans were all first domesticated there and became staples. Oranges and peaches were also first grown in China. I'm not sure how early they arrived, but crops such as wheat and barley made their way to China at a fairly early date as well. Silkworms were also domesticated early in Chinese history. The culture, society, and early dynastic states of China started in just one of Skinner's regions, the large, flat, Yellow River Delta of North China. When historians talk about the history of early China, they're basically just talking about this one region. It's the original 13 colonies of China, so to speak. That doesn't mean that things weren't happening in other parts of modern Chinese territory. They just weren't quote-unquote Chinese yet. Everyone else was still barbarian. As succeeding Chinese states expanded, they mixed and melded with the former quote-unquote barbarian populations. Some groups, such as the Yi or Hmong, maintained their own identity and languages even after centuries of dealing with the Chinese or becoming part of the empire. Others were absorbed into the greater Han Chinese culture, which was in turn changed by them. Okay, time to get into some linear history. Because I think it provides some useful context, I'm going to lay down some well-known historical markers as we go, so you'll know what's going on in Europe around the same time. We're going to begin in the 6th century BCE. Just know that there was a ton of stuff that happened before that, obviously. This is roughly contemporaneous with what you think of as classical Greece. 
Plato, Aristotle, Sparta, Athenian democracy, the Peloponnesian War, Alexander the Great, etc. I'm going to move pretty fast to start, and then slow down when we get to the penultimate Chinese dynasty, the Ming. The early years of our story, from about 500 BC to 221 BC, were defined by two important trends. First, there was the intense rivalries and shifting alliances between early Yellow River Delta states. Second, and closely related, is that this is the great period of intellectual flourishing and debate over different approaches to both statecraft and personal ethics. In the Chinese tradition, it's known as the Hundred Schools of Thought. This was the age of Laozi, the founder of Taoism, and also the giant of Chinese imperial thought and culture, Confucius. Confucius lived during the beginning of this period, dying around 480 BCE. Over the next few hundred years, his disciples and their disciples collected and collated his sayings into the Analects. Perhaps the most influential of these disciples was Mencius, who was born about a hundred years after Confucius' death. In later centuries, his writings and commentaries on Confucian thinking would join the pantheon of Chinese classics. This is to say, while Confucius was almost certainly a real person, the work of developing Confucian thought was a project in which many people participated and contributed. It was also during this period that the Chinese canon, known as the Five Classics, was collected and edited, supposedly by Confucius himself. These are the I Ching, the Classics of Poetry, Book of Documents, Book of Rites, and the Spring and Autumn Annals. With the addition of the Confucian Analects, these works formed the backbone of the Chinese imperial education and elite culture all the way up until the 20th century. This period finally came to a close when the Qin successfully conquered all of their rivals and declared the Qin Dynasty in 221 BCE. The level of imperial consolidation that took place during the Qin vastly exceeded all the Yellow River states that had preceded it. The Qin Dynasty was led by a man known to history as Qin Shi Huang, which was his title, not his name. It literally means First Emperor of Qin. It's common practice in Chinese history to refer to rulers by their title, and I'm going to follow it for the sake of clarity. You've probably heard of the Chinese terracotta warriors, right? Well, that's this guy. If you haven't heard of them, stop this right now and go look them up. They're a collection of more than 8,000 life-sized clay warrior sculptures equipped with real bronze weapons and buried with Qin Shi Huang to protect him in the afterlife. This was just a part of his giant mausoleum complex that remains largely undisturbed today. Anyways, the Qin were pretty brutal, and the dynasty quickly lost control of the empire after Qin Shi Huang's death in 210 BCE. The peasant population was fed up with high taxes and being impressed into massive, deadly building projects, like the mausoleum or an earlier version of the Great Wall. Several rebellions broke out. A peasant named Liu Bang, a former patrol officer with the Qin, rose to prominence, and when the fighting ended, he was the last man standing. Liu founded the Han Dynasty from the ashes of the Qin. The dynasty would last for about 400 years, give or take a few major uprisings. Back in the Mediterranean world, the Han ran from roughly the Roman Republic's triumph over Carthage in the Second Punic War to right before the Roman Empire's near dissolution in the mid-3rd century. The Qin and Han dynasties pushed the boundaries of China, down to the Pearl River estuary in the South China Sea, west to Sichuan, and north, well, they ran into some trouble to the north, 
and ended up paying a bunch of tribute to the mighty steppe empire of the Xiangnu. Sometimes it's hard to tell when the Han and future Chinese dynasties were truly independent and when they were a fancy tax collection service for steppe confederations. The cities of Chang'an, Luoyang, Nanjing, Hangzhou, Kaifeng, and Beijing all served as Han capitals for large parts of the history of the empire, and would all continue to be important cities for the following 20-odd centuries. The Han promoted the Confucian ethic as the official governing philosophy and ethic for the empire. Buddhism also entered China during the Han dynasty, though it wouldn't be until later dynasties that it rose to true prominence in Chinese society. The economy of China flourished, and trade overland across Asia and the ocean routes to the south prospered. All those silks that were so popular in Rome and gave Pliny the Elder heart palpitations, they were products of the Han economy. We even have some tantalizing evidence in written sources that at least one Roman citizen traveled all the way to China, and the Han court was very well aware of the Mediterranean Empire to their far west. At its height, the Han dynasty had a population of about 60 million people and covered 2.5 million square miles, so it's roughly analogous to the Roman Empire at its height. In 184 CE, a wave of peasant rebellions, collectively known as the Yellow Turbans, broke out. This will be the first in a long line of rebellions in China that are defined by the color of their headgear. The initial uprising was several hundred thousand strong, and led by a Taoist teacher who took the title General of Heaven. Although he was defeated within a year, further uprisings broke out all over the empire and would burn for another two decades. Although the Han eventually triumphed, it was a Pyrrhic victory. Individual generals and local elites had gained too much power at the expense of the central state, and the dynasty officially fell in 220 CE. After the Han fell, their territory was split between three different states for about 80 years. Although briefly united toward the end of the 3rd century, the former Han territory soon fell back into a state of civil war and disunion. There are different ways historians talk about this period in Chinese history, but I think names like the 16th dynasties or the 6th dynasties sum it up well. So for about three and a half centuries, from 220 CE to 581 CE, the political life of China was relatively fractured and decentralized. But life and culture don't stop and wait for political unification. It was during this period that Buddhism really took hold strongly in China and other parts of East Asia. It's still widely practiced there today, long after it disappeared from its native India. Buddhism joined Taoism and Confucianism as the so-called Three Teachings. Political unification returned to China in 581 when the Sui Dynasty united the old Han territory. Like the earlier Qin Dynasty, the Sui Dynasty itself didn't last that long, 40 years, but it was succeeded by a much longer-lasting dynasty. The Tang Dynasty ruled the united China from 618 to 907 CE. This roughly overlapped with the Muslim conquests and the early caliphates. Charlemagne and his successors were there for a bit as well. Tang-era China was tremendously cosmopolitan. The quote-unquote Silk Roads and southern trade routes through the South China Sea were tremendously active, thanks in no small part to the recent conquests of the Muslims and the political hegemony that followed. Muslim traders moved to China by the thousands and lived in cities like Xi'an, in central China, and along the South China coast. Nestorian Christians, Jews, Hindus, Zoroastrians, and Manichaeans also moved east into China along the Silk Roads, 
or by boat from the Indian Ocean. They established communities and built churches, but they were never made to feel at home, and they were subject to several official prescriptions, as well as several instances where the foreign population of a city was targeted by people who considered themselves native. In the late 9th century, an army rebelling against the Tang slaughtered between 100,000 and 200,000 foreigners in the southern port city of Guangzhou. Politically, the Tang pushed the borders of China further than they had ever gone, briefly advancing as far west as modern-day Kazakhstan, where they were crushed by an allied Abbasid and Tibetan army. Internally, the Tang dealt with several rebellions, including the great An Lushan Rebellion of the 8th century, led by a Sogdian man that came from the so-called Western provinces. The Tang Dynasty, which fell in the early 10th century, was followed by the Five Dynasties and Ten Kingdoms period, which, as you can probably imagine by the name, saw many different states struggling with each other for supremacy of China. After about 50 years, the Song Dynasty came out on top, although it took another couple decades to bring most of the splinter states under their control. According to most official histories of China, this is the beginning of the Song Dynasty. And they did rule most of China. The thing is, the Song never finished consolidating power in the lands of northern China. The western Xia and the Liao hung on to power there. Their territory included the region where Beijing is today, as well as territory to the north of the former Tang borders. In 1125, the Liao fell to a rebellion and invaders known as the Jin. The Jin were led by an ethnic Jurchen people from Manchuria, which, while a part of China today, had not been part of earlier dynasties. After conquering the Liao, the Jin invaded the territory of the Song. A series of battles and sieges resulted in the capture of the Song Emperor in 1127 and the loss of the Yellow River Delta. Since they now controlled the ancient heartland of China, the Jin declared their own dynasty, the Jin Dynasty. But the Song didn't give up. They continued to rule what historians now label the Southern Song Dynasty, centered along the Yangtze River. Fighting between the Jin and Southern Song continued through the remainder of the 12th century. Back in Europe, the Song overlaps roughly with the bulk of what we call the High Middle Ages. And then came the Mongols. You've probably heard of them, and I don't really want to spend too much time here because I plan on doing an entire season on the Mongol Empire at some point in the future, and it's not directly relevant to the Taiping. Let's just say there's a reason I chose to begin the podcast with Genghis Khan's ascension in 1106 and not with Columbus's voyage of 1492, which is when I originally planned on. For now, know that between 1210 and 1279, the Mongols conquered China in an incredibly bloody and violent campaign and claimed the Chinese imperial mantle to found the Yuan dynasty. The Yuan was one of four successor states to the Mongol conquests and included most of modern China, Mongolia, Korea, and parts of modern Russia. It was this China, under the Yuan dynasty, that Marco Polo and a host of other Europeans became acquainted with for the first time. The Yuan dynasty fell in 1368 a topic which we'll look at in great detail next episode. Thanks for joining me.